My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Sickle. Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Limitation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Stranger. So what did we read this week? Well, it was The Stranger, but it wasn't this week because we recorded this podcast already and there were all sorts of audio problems and we lost a ton of the data. So we're recording it again. Sorry about episode six. (laughs) That one was complete. So we released it. Episode seven was missing. It had a lot of holes. A lot of pieces. But we're excited because it means we get to have this conversation again. And we're always saying after our podcast, like, oh, there was that one thing we didn't mention. And now we're going to try to mention all the things, except inevitably there will still be one thing we didn't mention. But, How true. you know, it'll be a different thing than it would have been earlier. Jenny, do you want to start us off with a 60-second summary? Yes, I do. All right. So in The Stranger, the Animorphs decide to go back to the Yerk Pool. They found another entrance. They're not going to attack it. They're just going to spy and try to find out where the Candrona is. And the Candrona is like the replica of the Yerk sun. It beams Candrona rays to the Yerk Pool. The Yerks have to get Candrona rays every three days. It's like their food, like their plants or something. And the Animorphs are going to find and destroy it. But Rachel's dad tells her he's moving out of town and wants her to come with him. So Rachel has this struggle. She goes into the Yerk Pool with everyone. They end up getting eaten by a taxon in Roach Morph, and suddenly time stops. And this guy shows up, calls himself the Elemist. He's like basically all powerful, we don't really know. He says he can take them and their families, some representative Earth species, to another planet to preserve the human race, the diversity of Earth, because the Animorphs are definitely going to lose. If they stay, they're going to lose. They think about it, they realize they can see while time has stopped a way out of the Earth pool. So they say no, they escape the Yerk Pool, Rachel goes into Bear Morph, goes totally crazy, really has a lot of trauma in response to that, and has like sort of a minor breakdown, and everyone else is like, oh man, if Rachel can't do this, none of us can do this. We're going to have to say yes to the Elemist. And before they can, he sends them to the future. They see Rachel is a controller. They see that the Yerks have won. They come back, they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to say yes, but he doesn't take them away. And they realize... But the reason is that while they were in the future, he let them see where the Candrona is. So they're able to all get together and destroy it. And they have this first, like, really significant major victory. And they don't go to another planet. And, uh, yeah, they're going to keep fighting. That was definitely more than 60 seconds. But it was good. It was really good. It was really good. Very detailed. And, <laughs> boy, this was a crazy book. It was really A lot crazy. of weird stuff happens. Crazy book. So, Gray, what did you think of the craziness? I really liked this book. There was a lot that happened, as usual, and a lot of it was unexplained. There's a lot of stuff that just you kind of had to take on faith to some extent, which is not my strong suit. So I, I had to kind of take a lot of it with a grain of salt or or, or thought of just, all right, we're just going to go with this, yeah. and that's fine. We're just going to go with it. Uh, but it was, it was good. It was so interesting. Like, so much happened, and there was also a lot of Rachel and Tobias, which, yeah. as I know, is my favorite. I mean, it's so cute. Who whose favorite is it? Did it's so good. So cute. Um, but yeah, going back to what you're saying about like there was a lot that was kind of hard to swallow. I feel like that was also true for the animorphs. Like they were like, mm. really, this is what this this guy stopped time. Yeah, that's it's a good point. I mean, they don't know what's happening any more than I did going into it, which. 
they handle it better than I do. They're not, they don't totally think that Elmas is there in bad faith, but I do feel like they're all kind of like, why should we trust you? Like, especially Marco's like that, but really all of them except for Cassie feel like there's probably something going on here that doesn't add up. Like they're being manipulated in some way, right? Tobias is like, you did this in a way that means that you're manipulating my friends to try and like get them to agree because he's back in his human body the mm-hmm. first time the Elamist visits. Man, Tobias back in his human body is just, it's so amazing to see and also so heartbreaking. Like Rachel gets to hug him, which is so great. She's probably never done that. But also, I mean, he has all of these reactions that are still hawk reactions, and it's really tough, I think. Like, I would love to see, actually, some of Tobias's, like, part of this book through Tobias's head. Like, how does it feel to be in his human body briefly, to have the chance to stay there, to reject it, and then be back in bird form? Right. And it's interesting that they don't really check in with him about it afterwards. Even even Rachel doesn't really, like, follow up. I guess that's not her strong suit. But. But they have done this in almost every book that there has been some sort of event where Tobias can't be there, whatever that is. And no one checks on Tobias. He's outside and just trying to figure out what's happening, and he can't. And it's always terrible, and no one ever checks in on him. Right, afterwards. and you were saying this before, but they have this bit where they reject the Elemist's offer, and then it's not guaranteed that they're going to survive the rest of the book, right? In fact, so, it's very unlikely that they're going to make it out of the yeah, end Yeah, and they alive. have this whole traumatic thing, like you were talking about in the summary, Jenny, and then... Yeah. Rachel's never like, oh, by the way, Tobias, we're it alive. all worked out. <laughs> right. you know, we made the right choice. I know, you like, didn't get I, all your friends killed. I hope that Jake told him they were all okay. I hope he like flew by Jake's house. But it's really striking to think about, like, Rachel cares so much about Tobias. There's obviously a deep connection there. He's the one she goes to when she is struggling with things. And she doesn't really think about what he's going through and we've talked before about how Rachel's very focused in book two and she's very focused on like her own stuff and in this one yeah she just doesn't really think about what Tobias needs I think that's normally that seems to be pretty true of her not that she's self-centered but she's very focused on the moment and Mm -hmm. the action that's happening and making those decisions and less focused on the emotions that other people are having around her Mm -hmm. and their needs you know she obviously cares deeply for them and wants to make sure that they're happy and healthy and taken care of. But she's not so much of the caretaker as Jake or Cassie might be. And she's really the only one who's like that narrow in that way, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, Jake definitely thinks about how everyone in the group is doing when he's, like, making strategic decisions. And Cassie, like, identifies with people's emotions and tries to make them comfortable. And Marco kind of manipulates people with their emotions a little. Mm -hmm. He's definitely thinking about, like, strategically what the people in the group are doing. And Tobias is always a little bit at a distance. He's... I mean, he's the eyes for a reason. He's kind of seeing what's going on. And Rachel's really the one who doesn't have that perspective. Right. I guess I didn't include Axe in that list. I think he's still finding his footing. Yeah, literally sometimes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I think Tobias is a bit of a blind spot for Rachel, especially. Mm-hmm. She, I think, is very moved by his reaction to the circumstances he finds himself in. He's trapped. He kind of has to fight. And she'll take any excuse to point to Tobias and say, well, since he's this major casualty of the fight, then it would be totally selfish to think about going with my dad or do anything mm-hmm. else. And so making the space to have a conversation about how Tobias is, like, is really struggling with everything mm-hmm. probably would make it hard for her to uh, keep the lid on all of her own debts. Yeah, it's a thing we've talked about before where she has a lot of trouble with uncertainty and this thing where her dad is offering her this way out is really difficult for her to deal with. And she's always the one who's like, ah, moral quandary? 
this is the right answer. And like, someone will be like, eh, I don't know. And she looks troubled or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this book is a really Right. And she even says it. She says something like, when she has the, the freak out, when all the animorphs are like, oh, God, Rachel's totally losing it. She's like, <laughs> the more exits I see, the more scared I am. Oh, right. Yeah. So like, yeah, she's. She's got blinders on and she knows that she has to be this like amazing warrior. And then Mm -hmm. when somebody points out, even though her dad's kind of doing it for selfish reasons, when he points out like, yeah, you could have this totally different life. And like, that's a thing that, you know, people make that kind of choice all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And like even Marco a couple books ago was ready to be like, actually, I don't have to do this anymore. Right. And she she just she can't even handle the thought of it. It like totally freaks her out. Yeah. There's something, too, with her uh, vulnerability. Rachel does not handle vulnerability well. I think either on her own behalf or kind of other people's vulnerability. Mm. She's just not okay with being vulnerable, with being open. And I think the having too many exits freaking her out is kind of playing on that feeling a little bit that she doesn't want to have to make that decision. Right. It's interesting, actually, that... Marco, Marco's the one who's like, okay, Rachel's freaking out. If Rachel can't do this, none of us can do this. That's actually really not accurate. Like, she's actually much worse equipped for their current circumstances than any of the others are. In that the others are more comfortable to varying degrees with, like, with vulnerability, with seeing an accident, still choosing this path, with believing in, like, subtle truths and, like, taking in complex situations. And she doesn't do as well with complexity. (laughs) She really, like, wants to cut through the complexity. Right. And so this circumstance is particularly challenging for her, but they've set her up as, like, this sort of icon of the fight. And it's not really accurate. Right. We've talked before about how they all are in these like five man band positions and now six with Axe. And part of that is like, we have character diversity. It makes it a good story. But part of it is in the story. The others need them to be in these positions. And we see Rachel particularly really struggling to fit in this position. And we see Marco struggling to be the funny man. We see Jake like struggling with being in charge. And they feel like they need to stay in these positions because they can tell the others need it of them. And Rachel in particular... Right. It's really already struggling. Yeah, with and us. I want to highlight a moment that ties this back to her relationship with Tobias again, mm. which is when the Elemist has his offer, and Tobias is kind of immediately like, "No, you're manipulating me. Something's mm-hmm. fishy here." And that seems like a very genuine reaction from him. You know, yeah. We aren't as said maybe he is feeling really conflicted at that point, but Rachel is feeling really, really conflicted. And Marco says, well, Rachel and Tobias say no, assuming that she's going to reject this thing. And she Mm -hmm. hasn't actually said that. And she has this kind of like, she talks about her stomach churning and she feels really doubtful. But then she says something really like forceful, like, yeah, the Elemist is, you know, he's full of BS or whatever. And then Tobias, even though until now he's shown like almost no emotion on his face, he kind of Mm -hmm. like smiles at her a little bit, right? (laughs) Because he's like, this is what I like about Rachel. She's strong-willed and she's defiant and she's like a real fighter. That's just one example of the way the the other people box her in. I felt like her reaction was more genuine than maybe the way you described it there. Because she's like, I didn't, I didn't say yes. But I would say yes. Like, I felt like she, there was a part of it that was her feeling like she needed to perform this role, but also it was how she really felt. And very specifically how she feels about Tobias. So I actually, I have this passage highlighted. They're deciding whether they should go with the Elemis to this new planet or stay behind and fight. Tobias personally has a lot to lose. And Rachel thinks, but I hadn't voted. Marco had just assumed, and he was right, I realized, with a sick churning in my stomach. Marco was right about me. I had to vote no. If Tobias was ready to stay in the fight with all he had to lose, I couldn't do less. 
What this character wants us to do is run away, I said. He wants us to abandon our people and our planet just to save ourselves and the people we care about personally. Tobias met my gaze. There appeared a faint flicker of his old human smile. So to some extent, she is being pushed into this, but uh, she's choosing to stay in the fight because Tobias is and because he is one of the people that she cares about personally. She's going to fight for him. Yeah, and there's a moment in the earlier scene with him that really shows that he also sort of sees her in this way. Like, I don't think he sees her without nuance, but he does tease her when she says she's worried about going back to the Irk pool. And he's like, you're worried? You? Right. And it was just Mm -hmm. like cutting in a very small way. Like, I think their relationship is in a lot of ways a really good one, but he still thinks first of her as this like strong warrior and maybe inadvertently doesn't make it all that easy for her to be vulnerable. Right. So she, we see Rachel having kind of doubts about her role when she freaks out in the middle of the book. But by the mm-hmm. end, she's really recommitted, right? So the last yeah. thing she says is like, I'm going to save the world. And she seems to kind of come around. If she was questioning things when she gets forced into that choice earlier, she's totally embraced it by the end. So like, what about the way this wraps up kind Ooh. of changed it for Rachel? That's a really good question. I think part of it is the fight Mm -hmm. that Rachel was able to see that the future is not predetermined. When she has the chance to actually make a decision, she's more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so having made the decision to stay and fight on Earth and to stay and fight with the Animorphs and not go off with her dad, I think she's more comfortable now and she can be recommitted because a decision has been made. And that doesn't so, explain why she made the decision, but... What I'm hearing what you're saying is just that she put the blinders back on, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of like, we should talk about the way they, the bear and the butterfly play into this, right? But it's like, the bear is kind of blind in a bad way, but the butterfly <laughs> is kind of blind in like an optimistic way, and mm-hmm. that it, it's just flapping its wings and it doesn't know what's going to happen, right? So maybe that's just being able to think about it like that makes it's her a really feel good happier. Point. Yeah, so the the bear and the butterfly thing, the bear, she says at one point, please, Jenny. Later, everyone thought I was being brave. But you know what the truth was? The truth was, with my weak bear eyesight, all I could see was a blur. I thought they were humans. I wasn't brave. I was just blind. Yeah. And it's so Rachel. That's just how how she approaches most of the decisions, right? She's the opposite of Marco, thinking 10 steps ahead, seeing Mm -hmm. all the possibilities, or even like jake wrestling with you know the the big picture questions she's just like i've already decided i'm not even gonna look it reminds me of in buffy the vampire slayer i feel like a lot of times her emotional conflicts get resolved by her getting to beat someone up and in a way it's like sort of a hand wavy like fake like that doesn't really resolve anything but it actually kind of does for her and that she gets to do what she's really good at to solve a problem and that's what rachel's doing here like she is able to see a clear way and follow it and do a thing and feel like she can actually accomplish something in this fight and not just that she's mired in this indecision she doesn't know how to navigate and so of course she's feeling like she can do this thing right and so maybe the blinders aren't necessarily a bad thing for Rachel. Yeah. I don't right, I don't think so. Don't well think blinders so. are okay, I don't know that much about horses, but my impression is that you put blinders on a horse in like a situation where they would otherwise be really nervous to let them do the thing that they need to do. And so I don't think she could lead the team wearing the blinders, but like the blinders are a tool to help her accomplish right. what she needs to. Yeah. The example you brought up with Buffy reminds me of something that we actually didn't talk about at all the first time. Yeah. The opening bit where they go to the circus. Oh, yeah. And Rachel gets to feel better <laughs> about herself by beating up an elephant. Joseph. Trainer. The circus. Do you want to talk about that a bit? I do want to talk about that. Do you think Kay Applegate likes circuses? No. I do not think <laughs> Kay Applegate. She has like really strong feelings against circuses. Which, fair. Yeah, no, really legit. 
the opening caper in this is Rachel just beating somebody up. <laughs> she doesn't really beat him up. She picks him up, squeezes him with her trunk, because she's an elephant at the time, and then throws him onto the roof of a tent. I stand by my point. <laughs> it's an interesting opening caper because it is Rachel taking action in a way that is not well thought through <laughs> and very deliberate to tell this person, you stop mistreating your elephants. You have to be kind to them. Otherwise, I will come back as an elephant and I will squish you. Mm-hmm. Which is She's a, the elephant police. Is that what she is? Pretty much. Right. The intergalactic elephant police or something like that. <laughs> so the well-known IEP. <laughs> But another thing about that is that Cassie's there and kind of keeping a lookout and isn't super comfortable with what's happening, but lets her do it anyway. (laughs) And it's a very funny friendship moment between the two of them of Cassie being like, this is such a terrible idea, but I'm here for you. I'm going to, I'm going to support you in this, but this is such a terrible idea. And Rachel does, she says something like, you're going to be a great mom one day after feeling (laughs) guilty. Like Cassie is at least able to rein her in a little bit. I feel like. What would she have done if Cassie hadn't been there? Uncontrolled Rachel. I don't know. I don't think she would have murdered the guy. No, 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 no. She might have, like, broken his arm or something. So this is kind of progress in that we had been talking about how they had been doing all these, these, like, opening capers. They'd been morphing alone, and it was a terrible idea. And this time they didn't do it alone. (laughs) But then later, (laughs) she goes and acquires the bear completely alone at night, landing in a grizzly bear enclosure and demorphing alone in the darkness. It's not smart. It was really not smart. So at the beginning of my notes, it's like, progress! And then I was like, no, just kidding. I also like that she uh, covers for Cassie, right? So even though in the caper they do it as a team, she tells the group that she did it by herself. Because (laughs) for some reason, they don't want to get Cassie in trouble with Jake. And so, like, they clearly all ship it. But that's a little, that's not a great group dynamic, like, protecting her from... It's not a great Cassie and Jake dynamic. No, it's not. Cassie never never got called out. People didn't know she had morphed the squirrel. Right, Tobias doesn't tell her about the squirrel. So Jake doesn't doesn't know that Cassie's been doing any of these stupid things, which, like, I don't know. I feel like they should have a relationship where they can be open with each other about these things. Yeah. Like Rachel and Tobias, who have the best relationship ever. (laughs) Maybe someday Cassie and Jake will get to the level of Rachel and Tobias, but we certainly do not see that in this book. One thing that uh, was a little bit of a red flag for me is when she's like, you know, Mr. Joseph something something. Like, I'm not even going to bother pronouncing his last (laughs) name. Like, it's a little bit xenophobic. Yes. Ironic from Xena the Warrior Princess. Right. Also given, I'm not sure how awesome the zoo is that it's... There's that much of a difference between the zoo and the circus. Mm. Like, maybe it really is, like, the best zoo ever, but... Jake's description of the zoo was kind of like, this is the best zoo ever. They're super nice to their animals. They're all, like, realistic animal-like habitats. But it's still a zoo, so questionable. It's uh, interesting that the zoo comes up again in the later part of the book when the Elemist gives them this choice. One of the things that makes Cassie so on board with how the Elemist is Mm -hmm. giving them this choice is her experience with a zookeeper mother and a wildlife rescuer father, that she understands that sometimes there are these wiser forces in the world that really know what's best for you, Mm -hmm. and you just have to trust the zookeeper that they are helping, which is interesting when you compare it to the circus. Yeah. Because that is another situation in which you have have animals who are, in theory, being taken care of by an overseer. And sometimes they are doing a great job. Yeah. I think one of the sticking points is like you can't use the the cattle prod, right? So it's like it's not you have to release 
the elephants, right? It's just like you can't abuse them. And so it's, again, with the Elemist, it's like if he's just sort of like forcing them to make a prescribed choice, they're like very much, oh, you're manipulating us. This is bad. This is bad. But if he can be more trusted, if he's more like working with them, maybe that's okay. So the choice he gives them is the cattle prod and <laughs> letting them come to realize what the point of the uh, choice actually was is more of the gentle approach. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. But yeah, there is this, I think, is it Marco who says, no, we don't want to live in your zoo? Like there is this zoo thing going through from the circus to she goes to the zoo to the Elemis is offering basically to create a zoo for them. And there is some like freedom versus safety stuff going on here. And can you trust the quote unquote superior creature who's offering to take care of you? Well, I guess the the difference is the Elemist is at least at face value, offering them the choice to go extinct, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a choice that is being offered the actual animals in either of the circus or zoo situations, right? Like you're saying the tigers don't want to, they like is try and escape the nets, right? Mm-hmm. And they would all go extinct or whatever, but maybe they should be able to do that. Yeah, if they get the choice. So I was really intrigued by Cassie's take on the Elemist decision. Like, I think it made sense if one of them was going to be in favor of saying yes, it makes sense that it was her because she does have this like wildlife extinction sort of perspective on it. That made a lot of sense. I was really disturbed by her not seeming to grapple with the idea that like, okay, yes, the species would be preserved. The like diversity of life would be preserved, but the actual lives would not. Like the billions of creatures already on planet Earth would die. And yeah, their legacy would live on, but like, what do we care about? Do we care about preserving their genetic lifeline or do we care about preserving them? Right. I mean, I agree that she doesn't grapple with it. I think it's pretty in character. The way that I read that is like, she's the one who's most willing to operate on faith Mm -hmm. of the group, right? It's sort of like this godlike creature shows up and says, hey, here's how it is. Just based on her personality, she's the most likely to be like, well... What do we know, right? She's very humble, yeah. whereas everyone else yeah. is like, I'm not going to trust you, you know, Mr. <laughs> Principal Axe. Elemist, yeah. right? Mr. Vice Principal Elemist. Uh, something that we talked about the first time we recorded this uh, that I want to revisit is how we all pictured the Elemist in <laughs> Yes, I, I wrote down Blue Bilbo in my notes. I said Alien Gandalf. And I thought right in between Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen and Elrond. Yeah, I did like how we all had the Lord of the Rings reference there. Yeah, we might be nerds. <laughs> but also, so might Kay Applegate. Yes, very possible. <laughs> T- um, tiny possibility. Rachel's a huge nerd. She Rachel, knows what Tolkien Rachel, elves are. Yes. It's That's 1997 right. yeah. at best. They like Star Trek. They're films. all huge nerds. Yeah, Marco talks about Star Trek all the time. Great. So the Elemis decision is something that I found... It was very convoluted, the mm-hmm. whole Elemist thing, in part because the way it was described from Rachel's perspective, she doesn't always know what's going on. And so sometimes it seems like it was a dream sequence. Sometimes it's clear that he's putting them into this other situation. It just wasn't always clear to me what was happening. I also did not like him. <laughs> I thought he was a real No, jerk. he's super annoying. Yeah. He's very annoying. He's very rude to them. He is providing them with this, I think, false decision about what their future is going to be. And I didn't like him. I didn't like him at all. Right. So a couple of things. What makes it a false decision? I think this is really interesting. My thought was that it doesn't matter what decision they make. He is not going to accept it. The first decision they make is, no, they're going to stay. They're going to fight. They don't want to go onto this human zoo. 
fine. He says, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to ask you again. And if you changed your mind, then I'll take you away to this human zoo. So Rachel has her freak out. They decide, yes, we do want to go away to this other planet and be protected. And he comes back to offer them a decision. And they say yes. And then nothing happens. (laughs) Because he wasn't, I think, intending to ever give them that choice. Instead, they say yes. And he brings them to the future where they can see the outcome, a potential outcome, of their battle. Right. So it's the other way around. They see the future and then they say yes. Yeah, it's true. Oh, sorry. Right, because yeah. it's it's what you say. They decide yes and then They're they're thinking about saying happens. yes and he takes them to the future and then they say yes. Okay, yes. So I did have that out of order. My apologies. But you're right that they say yes and then they're like, why isn't anything happening? We're in school. Right. Why and are then, we still here? And then the thing with um, the history teacher where she kind of goes into a trance and says, <laughs> oh yeah, that was uh, definitely butterfly him. effect. Yeah. Right, so he's, he's kind of putting his finger on the scales again. Single butterfly. Right. So, but I guess the thing is, you're not saying it's a false choice in that, like, the future is determined. You're saying it's a false choice in that he was going to kind of keep cheating whatever, like, rules he's trying to operate by until he could get them to where he wants to get them. He's manipulating. Like, if it was, like, two weeks later and they hadn't gone, he'd be like, oh, man, these kids aren't going to figure it out. I guess they're going (laughs) to the zoo, right? I think that's what would have happened. Like, I think... He has some rules that he is operating under, and we don't really know what they are. From our perspective, he seems all-powerful, but clearly he's not, or he wouldn't have to be doing it this way. And I think he was like, oh, crap, they made this decision. I need to, like, I don't know, I'll yawn and stretch before I take them. And, of course, his time scale is probably a little right. different. I, so. I think it's important to the the weight of the ending that Rachel's moment of realization when she wakes up in the middle of the night and she's like, I've got it is something that that she has total agency over, right? So, like, if it's, like, I don't think that you're wrong, Gray, that it seems like he's kind of cheating, but if it isn't at some point, like, Rachel's decision to make, it all kind of falls apart. So it's a good point. I think she has a decision to make about the action in in the book and, to some extent, about whether to stay or go, right? Her decision to stay on Earth and keep fighting is in a large part determined by what she sees in this future scenario because she figures out what right what she their finds next steps the are. It, yeah, I just don't think the Elemist was ever actually going to take them to a zoo, and maybe he <laughs> it's will, hard to maybe say. He comes we back really and, I can't know. know yeah, and it's like yeah. how much does he know? He knows all of their names, so like, is he really basing it on their like specific personalities? Is he pushing <laughs> all of Rachel's buttons in just the right You'd way? Think he would you know, know, right? Like, like the... he, but then has a lot of power, right? I do want to talk a little bit about more. The mechanics of it you were kind mm-hmm. of saying like it seemed kind of like a, a dream sequence or hallucination so a couple of things happen the first time he shows up time stops right yeah and acts is like something weird there's a time distortion or he says mm-hmm. something like that right and lights have the inner sense of time so that seems like that actually happened right it literally something happened that acts can sense but mm-hmm. then tobias is suddenly like teleported they're all demorphed including tobias even right. though he's trapped in morph right. so like how does that work where did his body come from? Z space. Is it? Does that mean? <laughs> but does that mean everyone who's trapped in morph, their bodies are just in Z space somewhere? Like, yeah. what does that mean? Unclear. That's it. Invites a lot of questions. And then he, Rachel describes it. I think is opening a door. He opens like a door in the air to show them all the different ecosystems of the Earth and takes them on a tour of uh, cities around the world to show them, you know, the diversity of humanity and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, are those like visions, or is he actually like? opening a portal through space like what are the extent of his abilities here i came down on like those were visions like they were underwater but they weren't having trouble breathing like those were visions but them all being in the yurt pool like outside of time 
I mean, I guess he could have sent an independent vision to Tobias and like linked their visions somehow. But like, I don't know, it seems easier just to bring Tobias there. Like right. you get sort of into like the Matrix territory right. if you're like, okay. it was all just in So I heads. sort of buy that. It's like mostly literal. And then like maybe he has some ability to do the visions too. Right. But then the second time he takes them to the future. Yeah. Right. Which is a lot more plausible. Like, oh, he just made up this fake future to manipulate them. Like Grace mm-hmm. maybe suggesting. But if it if his abilities are more about literally doing things, does this future actually exist? Like, is it real? And and they're visiting it really? But it's not a vision as much as the other ones are because, for example, they just show up in the future and then they have to walk a really <laughs> long way. Yeah, they're not being guided. It's not a guided tour. It's not a guided tour. They're self-guided they're just in this meadow in the future. And it's like, oh, I guess we have to go to the city and find the train. Really, it's just a coincidence they go to the city. Okay, so like we're kind of agreed that in some ways it's a real future. I want to talk. Yeah, but what does that mean that it's a real future? Does that mean that like this future somehow exists as the future of their present, or are there multiple potential futures that exist out there as the future of their present? Right. Because clearly this future is not the one that's going to come to pass because they destroyed the Kandrona, and so. Is it like at every moment there is a future that will happen if you continue on your current course and they changed it so now that future is destroyed and there's a new one? Like- yes. I mean, I think it has to be, again, for it to make sense narratively, it can't be deterministic, like, and this is a fake vision, mm-hmm. or like they always saw this vision and then they always destroyed the Kandrona or whatever. It's like, this is one of the more likely outcomes, or maybe not, maybe it's one of the worst outcomes if they <laughs> if they don't destroy the Kandrona now, yeah. right? But it has to be, it, it feels like the Elemist has to be showing them, like, this is what's going to happen unless mm-hmm. you, Rachel, can, you know, turn things around. It does seem like it needs to be a potential future, but I don't think that there's anything in the text that indicates the extent of his powers mm-hmm. or what he's really doing here. And so it's possible that he's just got a TV screen where he made up this whole story and like, <laughs> lots of crazy things are going to happen. And Rachel, you should probably make a different decision. And then just kind of leaves them to figure it out. Right. I don't like it. Okay, so <laughs> I'm working up to kind of what happens right at the end of the future bit, where oh, we find so out confusing. that even though it is a potential future, right, it's different in some way. Um, Visser three, now Visser one, yeah. and Controller Rachel aren't expecting five humans and an Andalite. They're expecting six humans. And if this is a potential future, it doesn't branch from a point after the Elemist has taken them, right? It would have to branch, it would have to branch before, earlier, yeah. which doesn't really fit with like this whole thing about like Rachel's choice is the thing that matters, and this is like a version of the future. So it's really weird. So That is very confusing. I was always confused by that reading this book and just kind of glossed over it. But I think I interpret it as like they weren't expecting Axe to be in Andalite form. Yes. But there's still a bit about where the, he says... Six humans, or five humans and an Andalite, which he would still be an Andalite even if he morphed a human. But I wonder, like this time reading it, it occurred to me that maybe the like butterfly wing flap that like changed things was when they're in the future already and Rachel gets bumped by a human controller and she says, excuse me. And right. then <laughs> so Rachel. they get called on not being controllers or whatever. And they have to cover for it by having Axe demorph and pretend to be the Visser. Right. And then because Axe is in his Andalite form, he's like prepared to attack. And that's why, you know, the fight breaks out and they weren't prepared for that because yeah. they thought everyone would be in human form. And I love the parallel with the last book where Tamarash gets found 
found out because he's like uh, <laughs> no know, one's prepared for Andalite, Andalite filth or whatever and then this time well it's, it's the other way you know Rachel's just normally like she's a bratty teen or whatever and she just lets it slip and then the control room is immediately like uh, <laughs> oh you're right really suspicious yes. okay I like um, that parallel yeah I think you're right that it's something about Axe being an Andalite form right because otherwise were, it just doesn't make sense Right, but Gray, you pointed out something last time we talked about this that blew my mind about how Controller Rachel reacts to the situation. So I have a theory that Controller Rachel's faking being a controller in this future. Please say more. Because she, her reactions to the situation are very odd, and younger Rachel notices it. So, for example, she has this very like cruel smile. She's a controller. She's on the side of Visser Three, who's now Visser One. And she's being his second in command to some extent. So she says everything has worked out perfectly. But Rachel's looking at her and says, I watch closely for any reaction by my older self. Nothing, not a flicker. And yet there was something. She was trying to hide something. And so they figure out that there's something weird going on. And young Rachel kind of trips. And the older Rachel grabs younger Rachel so that Mm -hmm. she doesn't get injured. And Rachel suddenly realizes, wait, this wasn't in the script. Axe wasn't supposed to be here. So there's this whole thing about the controller Rachel, older Rachel, knows something's up. She knows there's something weird, and she's having a difficult time hiding that from her younger self. My Mm -hmm. theory is she's not really a controller. She's just pretending to be a controller to take things down from within or something. So I love this theory. (laughs) And for me, I think it it answers like all of my questions about the way the timelines work. Right, combined with the thing that Jenny was just saying about mm-hmm. it's not that Axe, like, it's not that they never rescued him, it's that he just wasn't in his Andalite form. Yeah. So there's this version where, like, they're sort of going through this thing where Controller Rachel is like, oh yeah, I was in your shoes before and everything played out just like this. But of course, something's different about it, right? Maybe it's that Axe has revealed himself to be an Andalite. And so the only, if the Animorphs are still fighting, if Rachel is still a controller, what is their plan and how do they still have a chance? Or like, why would it make sense that they would have to lie about it being six humans instead of five humans and an Andalite? And so what if there's, you know, one Andalite who's there in plain sight, Axe has, <laughs> as part of this gambit, become Visser One and is stayed, they're staging the whole thing. And, you know, all the stuff about Tobias having been like barbecued and eaten, that's not true. Tobias is safe. He's somewhere out in the woods in the future. <laughs> And so they're still fighting, right? There's still a chance. They actually haven't lost. And this whole thing is like basically the Elemist being like, okay, so they're still fighting, but things got real bad. Let's see if we can go like reset this a little earlier in the timeline. And I, I just, I love that it's interpretation. Of totally crazy, but also I just love the idea of them like 10 years in the future pretending to be the Yerks and taking it down from within yeah. and Axe swaggering and, around as Visser. And I think, so like, He'll be full grown by then. The time travel stuff doesn't make a lot of sense, but you could say like Controller Rachel, maybe she's just disturbed because she knows that this didn't happen and that makes her feel unsettled. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I also agree reading and I'm like, what is this big secret, right? It's got to be something pretty big. I like it. I think it's a great theory, and I really (laughs) hope that that happens. There's also the weirdness of, like, so Controller Rachel, if she is the same Rachel as the Rachel who is the younger Rachel who's here, as this event happens, Controller Rachel's memories of the event should shift. Well, it's it, sort it of it's like the That's back, like back to, the to the future, future style, time travel. Right? Yeah, where like the picture slowly fades. But I think yeah. it, it could also just be like genuine branching timelines style. So she's where it's stuck like, in a timeline yeah, where if it you're, happened a certain way. If you're way. visiting. And I think that's that's why I was like so frustrated. Or it's so good that the Elemist cuts it off when he does. Because <laughs> they make absolutely 
the worst time travel choice possible here <laughs> when they start to go into battle morphs thinking they're indestructible. Mm-hmm. Because like if the timeline is deterministic, then you know that you can't die in the future, right? right? It, or it's you impossible. You mentioned the it's time a, travel paradox, plot armor, yeah. Right? You have time travel plot armor. And what they've just learned is that the future is not deterministic. And so yet, they're like, yay, and yet let's they die. say, oh yeah, we'll just now we'll just go out in a blaze of glory and kill <laughs> Visser Three, now Visser One in this fake horrible future, yeah. which is totally useless. Like, what a complete Especially waste! Especially because it's secretly actually acting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That would be bad. <laughs> it's it's a crazy thing to have happen, and the fact that the Elemist is putting them in this situation without giving them. Jenny, as you say, like, maybe he can't give them hints. Maybe he can't help. But also, maybe he could do a little more. <laughs> he could do it a little differently, maybe. He could yeah, do a little differently. And we don't know what his situation is. No, I don't like <laughs> Pretty it. Pretty scary. I also <laughs> just want to read out what he's at the very end. They have made the decision he wants them to make. They're going Played to right stay into his hand. fight. Yeah. They have learned their lesson, whatever it is. And Rachel says... I don't believe the Elemist knows the future any more than we do. Because wherever it is the Elemist exists, whatever he's up to, whatever game he's playing, and no matter how mighty he is, he has butterflies too. They're the butterflies. (laughs) And then a voice comes out of nowhere and says, Ha 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 ha, as I said, you are a primitive race, and yet you are capable of learning. Hey! (laughs) Rude! (laughs) They are teenagers! They figured out your stupid mind game. It's so true. Come on! Yeah, there are a couple other Elemist things like that. His first line is, Humility from an Andalite! (laughs) (laughs) Which I also just love, because the glimpse uh, of the view the galaxy has of Andalites is great. (laughs) It's not just the Yurks who think the Andalites are arrogant. It's like a commonly held view. The other great thing about the Elmist being a uh, like, snob is when he shows them all the stuff and then he's like, and look at this amazing painting. You came close to like true <laughs> art, humans. But You're I almost actually, there. Your mom will put it on your fridge. But, Gray, I don't know. Do you still have the quote about the painting? The picture they're talking about is Van Gogh's irises. and It's the one where it's purple irises and one is white. And it's a really beautiful painting. It's, it's hanging in the Getty at the moment. So Van Gogh paints it in the last year of his life. He's in an asylum in France. And he started working on irises, working from nature in the asylum's garden. And he called the painting the lightning conductor for my illness. I think that's just a really wonderful phrase. Also, it's a beautiful painting, and Van Gogh is often used as a stand-in for humanity in our relationship to art, mm-hmm. in especially science fiction and fantasy, but mm-hmm. pop culture in general. So one of our favorite episodes of Doctor Who, yeah. for example, is all about Van Gogh. And this is just another example of saying there's a way that he is able to paint the beauty and pain of humanity. I also like the parallel between the painting as a lightning conductor for his illness and the way Rachel uses morphing in this book, like she's trying to find coping mechanisms and deal with the incredible trauma they're all going through. She does use morphing in that way, which is pretty interesting. So she she morphs into a bird when she's having a bit of a moment with family stuff, which I think we should talk about. And she goes to find Tobias in her bird morph. And I think there's something about being able to change her situation, her perspective, literally change it by changing her form is very helpful for her. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that comes up for other animorphs as well, that they're getting some joy out of the situation as well as the pain and grossness of these morphs. And she really seeks out the 
bear in order to get something from it, mm-hmm. right? It's not necessarily that the bear is the most practical choice, but she's like, you're oh, it so... It is a good practical choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a little more practical than an elephant, right? But oh, it's, yeah. it's really more about like, it seems like you don't have a care in the world. Yeah, she wants the nothing can mess with you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it works out great. But it also seems like the others don't have a great opinion of her using morphing this way. Not the bear specifically, although they were mad about her acquiring it alone at night. But the thing where she was like flying all afternoon, like had to demorph and morph again. And they, they're like really skeptical of this as a thing that she should be doing. And yeah. and maybe it's Marco when he's like, yeah, Rachel's losing it. Like Rachel's starting to use morphing as an escape. And this is a sign that like we're all screwed here. Yeah, well, that, that brings up something that I've been wanting to talk about for a bunch of different books. It's something that started getting introduced maybe in like book five, maybe even mm-hmm. earlier, but when they introduced the morphing power, no matter which character it is, they'll say something like, you know, morphing is like a powerful weapon. And uh-huh. in this book, it's, but like any weapon, it can destroy those who use it. And mm-hmm. it's a really interesting framing. I think that it says a lot about what you were just saying, that the morphing can be kind of this like temptation, but also this idea of like their perspective on what their war is for. I feel like that phrase maybe i'm forgetting the context i thought it was more uh with regard to tobias getting stuck that's interesting to think that it might also mean it's something you could escape into in a dangerous like unhealthy way and i mean it sometimes they have to morph cockroaches (laughs) or ants maybe that's the the curse part that they end up in these situations and it's a curse and that they have it so they have to use it to fight the yerks I think, Jenny, you're you're right about it in this particular situation because uh, it's after she's talking about Tobias that she says, like any weapon, it can destroy those who use it. So very much about him getting trapped in Morph. But it's it's an interesting point because it's one of the questions I had actually at the beginning, which has not come true, that oftentimes in situations where uh, people are able to take the form of animals for whatever reason, usually it's magic, there is often an issue with getting back into your humanity that sometimes the animal mind can kind of take over and they've struggled with that, but it hasn't been the kind of thing where they've struggled with it so much that they get trapped in morph. That's not why Tobias is trapped. So it's interesting that maybe they're struggling with that a little bit. They seem to be more taking advantage of it that Mm -hmm. Rachel can go into the bear morph and just be very Zen about her predator (laughs) instincts. We are seeing Tobias start to have trouble accessing his human self. Like when he's human, he's not really making facial expressions. Like Rachel runs towards him to hug him and he starts flapping his arms. And it's yeah. so it's really like embarrassing tragic. for him. It's re- Yeah. It's very tragic. He hasn't been human in like months. Poor Tobias. Yeah. Tobias is, as always, my favorite character. And I would like to very quickly get back to Rachel and Tobias forever. Can you read the description you read before of Rachel describing Tobias? Oh, I, that is the page that I'm currently on because I wanted Perfect. to read it too. So Rachel is describing all of the animorphs. And she gets to Tobias and she says, Then there is Tobias. Back when all this started, Tobias was barely an acquaintance of Jake and Marco, although I kind of knew him. Understatement. Interesting. Interesting. He was a sweet, poetic kind of guy, the kind bullies love to pick on. He used to have messy, out-of-control hair and dreamy eyes that always seemed to be looking at something no one else could see. Now he's a hawk, uh, but I still see him as sweet, gentle Tobias, but he's been a hawk for a long time now. Yeah. So heartbreaking. And then as soon as the Elemist comes and he, he stops time, and one of the things that happens is Tobias appears in his human form. And Rachel says, then I saw something moving, one single thing in all that eerie stillness, a boy. He was tall, a little gangly. He had hair that looked as if it had never been combed. Oh, I whispered. Oh, look. 
it's Tobias. Ah. <laughs> and then she runs and she he freaks out because she scares him. And then she hugs him. It's so wonderful because it's unclear whether they ever got to hug while yeah. they were humans. Right. And I love them and they're so they cute. Never will again. Maybe they will. <laughs> Don't do this to us, Ted. But yeah, the, um, the bit about him having eyes that looked like they were looking at something no one else could see is really such a great description of Tobias's role in the group. Like I was thinking reading this book that like I really didn't give Tobias like his due like attention or credit when I read these books the first time. I think I just didn't pay that much attention. But he is really like we've talked about Cassie being the heart of the group, but like he really more than anything like embodies this fight. Like I feel a little dumb saying he's the soul of the fight, but that's also no, he, what he's I'm going to say. He is, I totally yeah, agree. He's the soul of the Animorphs. And he, like, because he's the one who right away doesn't want to leave, wants to continue the fight, even though it's, like, the highest cost for him. And he does it without, at least we haven't seen, any of the internal struggles that Rachel has. He's not, like, into being brave or anything. He's just, there's the fight. He's going to fight it. And he... We've talked about him being the eyes of the group, and that's true not just in that he flies over and sees threats. It's also that he can maybe see most clearly. He can see that future, that hope that no one else can see. And it's a great match with Rachel, we were saying before, (laughs) because Rachel's the one who's blind. Oh, it's so true. I also want to give Tobias credit. Since he gets to be involved in their visit to the future in a way that he isn't before, when Rachel screws up, changes the timeline, and the controller's going to find them out, Tobias is the one who jumps in and says... Actually, you don't want to mess with us because <laughs> guess who we've got? And he starts gesturing towards Axe, and Axe figures it out and starts uh-huh. demorphing. So he comes up with this, like, let's pretend that Axe is Visor 3, now Visor 1. Yeah, which he is has, not... like, the Marco moment. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a Marco yeah. moment. It's kind it's of like a Jake be. moment. But he he's, like, improvising. The true secret leader. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's it's secret leader Tobias. Yeah, he's very clever. And, and on that, he's, you know, stuck in this fight. When he is a human again, very briefly... They're trying to make this decision, and Tobias, and we've, we mentioned this earlier, but Tobias says, I vote no, you're using me, you're using my friend's affection for me as a tool, and I'm not going for it. And he, that is his immediate response. He sees mm-hmm. what's happening. He's, he's the first one to say used. anything, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he knows, even though it means he's going to go back to being trapped in a bird and never get to hug mm-hmm. Rachel again. Right. Yeah. He is, he's all in, he's so good about it, and he's just so aware of his situation and what's happening around him. I love it. And when he changes yeah. his mind the second time, he he's not even giving up. He says, mm-hmm. maybe we can, in, at some point in the future, we could come back and free whoever's left. Yeah. Right. And it's not the same kind of like, it's not bravado. Rachel's all about the bravado and he is not like trying to put up that front. Like that's just really yeah. where he is with the fight. Yeah. They're such a good pair. Since we're talking about relationships, let's talk quickly about Rachel and Cassie. Because mm. they have several actual conversations in this book, which is great. We haven't really seen them interact much. They d- interacted almost not at all in Cassie's first book. But also... Wait, but- let, me, let me just read. <laughs> let me quote something before you get okay. into this. Rachel says, Cassie has been my best friend forever. I have no idea why. <laughs> I'm not sure we do either. That's such a good point. We really have no idea why. But please continue. Because we see them have these three significant conversations and almost everything they talk about is about a guy. 
not in a like romantic sense, but they're just almost always talking about other people and almost all the other characters are guys. And so like they're at the circus, they're talking about Joseph something, they're talking about, oh, you're making this face like your dad, like, oh, Jake is going to kill you. Like, it's just, then they're at the mall, they're like, oh, where are Jake and Axe? Oh, yeah, Axe is difficult to deal with in a human morph. Like, where what's Marco up to? Like, I bet Tobias is having trouble being out of the spite. Like, they just talk about other people because like they don't really have anything in common. Right. Like, what was their friendship well, based on? Maybe it's that I just to take the other side of that. Maybe it's that neither of them like talking about themselves for different reasons. Mm. So that's actually kind of their compatible. But maybe in a more like it's like an immature friendship, right? It's yeah. like someone you grow up with, you hang out with all the time. But like Cassie's very kind of like private, right? Yeah. They all clearly ship Cassie and Jake at this point, but mm-hmm. she doesn't want to admit any of it, right? <laughs> Jake's maybe like a little more willing to mm-hmm. kind of acknowledge there's something more mm-hmm. than a crush there. And like Rachel similarly doesn't want to talk about feelings and is probably like the chatty one. So she's just going to be like <laughs> talking about them all and, and clothes and, you know, all the stuff that's going on. And Cassie's just there and nodding and listening. And <laughs> yeah. Maybe they just get along really well. The one thing they talk about that's not, well, I guess they talk about the Elemist, who's also apparently male. But they talk briefly about a sweater, and Cassie just, like, looks confused. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Shopping impaired. That's what Rachel says. Actually, while we're talking about shopping, should we talk about the sexism in this book? Let us please. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of it, yeah. There's a couple things that really stood out to me. One is, so one of the major conflicts in the book is Rachel and her family. Her father, as Jenny mentioned in the uh, summary, has invited her to move with him a thousand miles away from this whole situation. And one of the reasons that he wants her to do that is so they can be like doing guy things together. They can go to sports games and she can take gymnastics lessons and whatever. He's so bad. <laughs> and one of the examples that of that is she says, I've always had a close relationship with my dad. And when her younger sister is about to be born, her mom goes, oh, I know you've always wanted a boy, she told my dad. And he says, oh, come on, that was years ago. I thought I had to have a boy to do all the fun dad stuff with. But I have Rachel. She's as good as any boy. (laughs) And and Rachel says, I know it was sexist and all, but I still just thought it was great. My dad thought I was as tough as any boy. Ah, internalized misogyny. (laughs) Oh, Rachel. Rachel's dad. Yeah, so, again... This feels obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. Please do it. There are so many problems with that statement. And a lot of it centers around this idea, like this very simplistic, like not nuanced version of feminism where like women can do the things that men can and that will make them equal to men. Uh, As opposed to a view where like there's stuff that's traditionally been more feminine We've undervalued it because we undervalue women, but maybe that stuff is also valuable. Maybe you can do that, whether you're a man or a woman. Maybe you can do all of the stuff. It's not that male stuff is superior and we have to prove that women can do the male stuff. There's a lot of this, I think, in recent YA. Like, a lot of the protagonists are like, the tough girl, like, warrior, like, the Hunger Games, Katniss type. Like, I feel like Fifth Wave had this, um, Divergent. There are probably a bunch of others that, like, had sort of the, the tough, female main character sort of surrounded by guys but she's the toughest and and it's this idea it's the strong female characters thing where like it's misogynistic saying that you a female character isn't strong or isn't valuable or isn't worthwhile if she does traditionally girly stuff Mm -hmm. and rachel is very traditionally girly but we don't see that in this book 
Mm-hmm. Right. She doesn't go shopping. She... Right. And she actually has a line describing herself where she says, people say I'm pretty. I don't know. And I really don't care. Oh, that line. And that is one. Okay. That no one has ever thought that. But also <laughs> that, that I, I don't know and I don't care. Like that's. I mean, you might think it in a self-deceptive way. Right. But also, and this is important. That is a lie. It's, a, it's completely untrue because what we know of Rachel from the first six books is that she does care about pretty things. She likes shopping. She likes pretty dresses. Fashion, and that's yeah. okay. She doesn't need – and it's also not mutually exclusive with being tough yeah. and enjoying sports and wanting to hang out with her dad and the guys and do whatever. That is not mutually exclusive with liking pretty things. But it is a thing with, like, if you have a female character who's in a more traditionally male role, like the warrior role in a five band band and she shows like what we might think of as weaknesses like she shows interest in girly stuff that makes her less of that role whereas if you have a male character in that role and he suddenly has this like soft feminine side like you'd be like what an interesting nuanced character so much more depth whereas if it's a female character you'd be like oh well she's not really what we thought she was right and i think it's interesting that the authors don't choose to show her putting her hair together in the morning or picking Mm -hmm. out an outfit or doing the like what she would do to kind of be you know it's they sort of present it unproblematically as like she's effortlessly beautiful no matter no matter (laughs) what and she doesn't spend any time on it like the books kind of present that as true right Mm -hmm. which is i think if they were to have a but like rachel always thinking about her appearance they probably think that that would come off as a bad character which it probably would because we have a lot of internalized misogyny and it's yeah the thing about people think i'm pretty i don't know and i really don't care it's this very burdensome idea that is applied to women and girls in our society where you have to be pretty you aren't allowed to care about it if you care about it you are lesser but you have to be it anyway other people need you to be that and you also aren't allowed to work at it if you work at it it doesn't count as much you still have to do it but it's not as good as if you were effortlessly pretty like i feel like there are women out there who are like in long-term relationships who feel like they can't let their partners see them like crimp and do beauty stuff because like if it seems like they're working at it it doesn't count and it really sucks that they are giving this to rachel i agree so this thing about rachel being pretty not knowing not caring made me think in a more serious way about the descriptions of the characters we've been getting in the book so far because we have been sort of mocking the way it seems really really important to these authors to get across who's pretty who's cute and all that but it's awkward to put it in the voices of the characters and they're in first person so they're like girls say he's pretty or like cassie says he's cute and we've been kind of making fun of that like, it's actually pretty, like, weird, creepy that they feel the need so strongly to communicate to us that these characters are good looking, that they have to, like, shoehorn it in, even though it doesn't really fit in the narrator's voice. Like, why is it so crucial that we know in every book that Rachel is pretty? Will we not like her as much as the character, like, if we don't know that? Right. It's completely absurd, especially for the physical descriptions. I think we've come across this more so far in the books by the guys that... People say, Cassie says that he's probably cute or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's just a silly criteria. A physical (laughs) description of them would be enough. We don't need to know how cute they are or who thinks who is cute. Like, none of that is important. Especially because it doesn't even seem to be important who thinks who is cute. Because that is kind of, I mean, the fact that Rachel thinks Tobias is, like, cute in his human form. Like, we're interested in that. But, like, just the idea of like gotta figure out a way to phrase that this other guy is cute without making it seem like the main character is interested in him just because that information needs to be there right 
It does not. Yeah. Who cares? And they also yeah. they also can't just say like sort of more objectively, Jake is good looking without then saying no homo. <laughs> right. <laughs> if that phrase had been around, I tell you, you'd be in all of these books. I hope not. But yeah. But you want to talk about Rachel's relationship with her dad. Right. So her dad is the worst. And Rachel looks up to him in really problematic ways, <laughs> right? So what's he doing? He's like being very career focused and seems to be like in denial about what he's doing to his family who like he cares about, but like not enough to not do the thing that's like really selfish for him. So I think it's really interesting that Rachel sees or wants to draw a parallel between herself and her dad. I think there's something to the idea that she tells this story to herself about what he does, that his work as an investigative journalist and an anchor must be really important, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that he's like a bad guy and he just doesn't care about his family and it doesn't care about Rachel. Mm -hmm. It's that it's super important and and you know she kind of respects him for like being really dedicated right and i think she sees some of that in herself like i have this really important mission like i'm going to be like my dad and like really put everything into trying to save the world and i think she wants to kind of like draw that parallel there and then her dad is basically like actually we can it's all about me being selfish and you can join me like let's run <laughs> off together and then she ultimately realizes I'm the one who's going to save the world, and you suck. And that's where, <laughs> she, comes, that's where she comes to. At, I don't think end. she comes to you suck. I mean, I'm not sure I think he's quite the worst to the extent that you do. I do really have a lot of thoughts about the way he behaved at that dinner with his family, where he's like, being oh, like I, the guilty, I completely forgot about that. Being the guilty yeah. little boy, making his ex-wife be the bad cop, like sharing a, like a smile with Rachel, like bringing her in as his accomplice on this like guilty child act that he's doing to get away with his bad news. Like, but I don't know. I mean, it's a tough call for someone to like career versus family. He trying he's trying to have both. It's definitely a bit of a selfish request to ask Rachel to move with him. I, I think he does love her and wants her to be there with him. and you know. Sure, but he's definitely putting his needs before hers. I mean, yeah. he, he frames it as, come with me to this other place, and there's this really great gymnastics coach. It's Seems like bribing her more, to come. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, that's the bribe of like, see, I really am thinking about you. And more it's, I will get my daughter, who's actually more like a son, to come and <laughs> she will, we will be friends and we will hang She'll out. She'll hold my hand in things. the scary trip to this new city. Yeah, yeah. and it's not, it's not a consideration of you have your sisters and your mother and your friends and this life here. And there's mm-hmm. no real discussion of what it's going to be like to uproot her partway through the school year. Oh, and yeah. Her in a new school He's district. moving, like, right away. I mean, it's just, it's a very selfish move. And I don't think he recognizes how selfish it is, or at least we get no evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think the flip side, the other way to read the, or the parallel between her and her dad is kind of the opposite of what I was just saying, which is that <laughs> she kind of knows that he's, like, abandoned his family, and she has this really, really strong desire to not abandon her found family, especially Tobias, right? So, like, there's this line where she's, like, she says something really passive-aggressive, like, well, I know this is what you've always wanted. And then she goes upstairs and she's, like, let him feel like what it's like to just have someone walk away. Yeah. And then, of course, she can't walk away from (laughs) Tobias. It is one of the things in this book that I think Applegate does really well is bringing in those very human moments, what it's like to be a child of divorce and mm-hmm. to have to navigate this. And it's as we as we talked about in the last book, it's nice to have those moments of reality. They're real lives interspersed amongst this sci-fi book. The other thing I wanted to talk about with Rachel's dad was I think this book is very good. 
think it is also very heavy handed. <laughs> it is not subtle in the, in the way that Applegate draws the parallels between Rachel's decision to run off with her father and abandon the Animorphs and the Animorphs decision to run off with the Elemist and abandon the earth. Not subtle um, <laughs> at all. And there's a few other little things like that where it was like, I just think that maybe, I guess it's a middle grade book, so maybe I'm expecting too much, but also you didn't need to hit me that hard with it. I got it. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like A single the... <laughs> butterfly. Great. A single <laughs> butterfly. I kind of liked the parallelism. I feel like it it serves the emotional stakes really well. I take your point. It's not subtle. I think it suits the genre. And don't you like the parallel between the Elemist and the Bad Dad? <laughs> I do like that part. There are a few things in this book that I thought were really nicely done. Like I hadn't even realized until this discussion just now the parallel between the circus and like the zoo that the Elemist is maybe offering. Mm. Uh, I really liked. The parallel between the scene where Rachel flies to see Tobias right after her dad has told her that news and the scene where she flies to see him after she's realized where the Candrona is because it's almost the same scene. Like she sees the prey below, she like flies up and, you know, the first time she's like distracted by the prey and she forgets to warn Tobias and scares him and forgets how hard life is for him. And and the second time it's totally different and she's like, I'm not distracted by anything. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to warn Tobias and then we're going to do this thing together. And like having that scene where like it's almost the same circumstance, but the character behaves very differently is a great way to show character change. And I thought that was really nicely done. Yeah, that's a great example. That's a very good example. The other overly heavy-handed parallel was there's a history teacher. Oh, yeah. That was a little uh... (laughs) A little on the nose. Uh, Her name is uh, Miss Paloma, which means dove. And she is talking about World War II in history class this week. Maybe if the United States had been ready to fight earlier, the war would have ended earlier and fewer people would have been killed. But our country wanted peace. Because we were so devoted to peace, we may have actually made the war worse. We can never know for sure, of course. You can't really second-guess history. Okay, couple things. One, uh, you can. There are things that are possible to know, and one of them is, had the U.S. entered the Second World War sooner, fewer people would have died. Okay, that's one thing. And the second is, the teacher whose name is Peace is talking about the need for war, and she is the teacher whose skeleton they see when they go into the future, and that skeleton is somehow still in the history classroom. I was, it's just so that you know, maybe she is not fully accurate in what she is saying. Just what? It is a little bit early, I think, for the meme, but she does end up as a dead dove. Just saying. <sighs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, my point is, man, heavy-handed. I did like, it's also a little heavy-handed, but also I love it, that this is the third book in a row where we've seen the theme of hope come out really strongly at the Mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. Marco says, where there's life, Life, there's hope. Jake Jake. is giving hope to Tom and he has this whole thing about like, even when there isn't hope, we fight. Right, Yorks will give up even when rationally there's no way to win. Mm -hmm. And now this is like, a single butterfly can have an effect, there is hope, you can change the future. Rachel says at the end to her dad, we're going to save the world. And it's really funny because her dad, of course, doesn't think it's serious, but she means it. Yeah. Okay, so one thing that there's a great group dynamic in this book and that you get to see all of the Animorphs make this choice no and then make this choice yes later 
And one, it's to their credit as a tightly knit group that it's a consensus both times, yeah. right? They're very willing to vote on things. And in other books, there's kind of like, well, you know, Jake is deciding or like, and maybe he has already decided and he's trying to get them together. But here it's really, it's an unforced consensus. And it's it's really moving to me that they can get there. So Cassie, the first time, she's the one who's like, maybe the Alamist is right. But she smiles sadly and then says, you know, if, if you guys think that that's, that we should uh, say no, then I'll say no. And then the second time around, right, Rachel freaks out. Marco kind of leads the charge that, like, maybe we should change our minds. And a really interesting thing about that is that he presents it to the group. And this is actually what you were saying earlier about he knows how to manipulate people a little bit. He presents to the group, like, Rachel's losing it. How are any of us going to get out? Which is a very persuasive argument. But then later Mm -hmm. he says, I have some conditions. If the Elemist can bring certain people Mm -hmm. along, then I'm on board. It's clearly about And he's just just figured it out because all he wants is to rescue rescue his mom. And so here he's like, actually, maybe this is a way out for me and my mom. And who cares about saving the world? Uh, But then they all do, they all come around one by Mm -hmm. one. And at the end, Jake is like, you know, well, we've we've decided. It's so functional. Like this war would be such a disaster if they were like fighting within themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's really lucky, impressive. I'm not sure, like to their credit, that they managed to cohere this well. And, like, each fulfill their roles for the group and, like, not have infighting and, you know, they're all struggling with things, but they're supporting each other the best they can. Right. Especially for such a young group. Yeah. And they're really emotionally mature. And as we've talked about before, they're very compassionate, both towards the world and to each other. They're very impressive. We do see them, I guess, right before this, they start coming apart at the seams, right? Rachel freaks out. She's like, I can't do this anymore. That really does shake people. And Jake, I think, he's arguing with her... of saying you were morphing on your own where'd you get that bear morph you didn't tell us you you didn't come to school today something's wrong and then when she starts freaking out jake's like well whatever i'm sick of this right he start he like uh actually they need this the win in this book as a rallying point going forward because it's really starting to wear them down good point should we talk about the win that they get? Because it's yeah. good. <laughs> right. I mean, the thing that I love about this is that instead of it being a careful plan, when Rachel has that aha moment, she wakes everybody up at four in the morning and mm-hmm. is like, we have to do this now. Like, who cares if we don't make it to school at eight? We can destroy the Kendrona mm-hmm. and this is how we're going to do it. And then the momentum just like builds from there. There's a real sense of urgency. The first, yeah. when she wakes up in the middle of the night and realizes what the uh, solution is, she has a second where she thinks, I could not tell the others, right? We we already decided we're going to say yes to the Elmist. <laughs> we're going to let him take us away. Even though I, I think I know what the solution is, I can't tell these people. And I definitely was like, no, don't go attack it by yourself. That would be <laughs> oh, so dumb. Yeah. And it isn't. She figures it out and then she goes and gets everybody, starting with Tobias. I will hasten to point out. Um, <laughs> so that they can go together. It is a vicious battle, though. It's right. bad. It's like the worst one we've seen them have so far. Yeah, I didn't like it. Rachel loses an arm. I mean... Right. Marco's holding his, like, intestines in. Right? And then it's like they barely... They break the window so Tobias can swoop into the top of the building. And, like, that's just enough to... Yeah. Thanks, Joey. (laughs) They barely make it. Yes. And like we were saying before, if Rachel had been able to see, she probably would have chickened out and they would have lost. Right? Yeah. So it really really comes down to... She had butterflies in her eyes. 
Right. It's definitely good that they got the win, though. And it's, you know, right. Rachel says she doesn't know how that affected the yeah, year. And then it's just like, a replacement was on the way already. <laughs> it's like, why <laughs> didn't you do this two months ago, right. buddy? Right. They have, th- they have three weeks. <laughs> but it's so great that they do get that win. And also, man, it's such a rough fight scene. I just yeah, really struggled gory. with it. Yeah, there was a lot of blood and guts and ooh. So one quick question. Gray, do you know now how many eyes Andalites have? So the thing about this book that I learned is that the Andalites have four eyes. I thought that they only had the two on the stalks that, like, turned around into the different directions. And so uh, I only discovered in this book. I don't know why I thought that. The amazing thing about that is that we had already talked about the Andalites smiling with their eyes, which means that you thought the ones on stalks were somehow smiling. That's so cute. I can kind of picture that. Yeah. They just kind of like Wait, crinkle up okay. a little bit. But do the eyes on stocks not show any emotion? Because that's oh, really creepy. How would, yeah. Right? Like, if they're just like little surveillance eyes kind of like turning back and forth and they're like always staring at you. Balls don't show emotions. Like it's like the stuff around you. So what is around? Well, surely they have lids and on their stocks. We should discuss this later. Yeah. <laughs> I have some thoughts about that. I'm glad we're going to get a better glimpse of Angelite Anatomy. But yeah, yeah, I did not realize they had four eyes uh, until this book. So now I know. It's very exciting. Speaking of aliens, <laughs> Ted, there was a lot of taxon stuff in this one. Oh, Are you okay? No. It's the worst. <laughs> Guys, being eaten by a taxon is probably the worst thing that could happen to you. Yeah, pretty it's much. Very yeah. bad. Right? So, like, not only are they, like, giant centipedes with lobster claws and jelly eyes, they have these, like, these, like, frog tongues that can, like, uh, just, like shoot out and like, stick to things. Yeah. And then we learn about their insides, which are, like, filled with goo. <laughs> Let's right? read this. They're in the sort of year pool underground, and there's some sort of cafeteria. There's a taxon coming by. They're in their roach morph. Uh, hurtling down from the fluorescent sky at incredible speed came something like a bright red whip. Uh, it was too fast. The red whip slapped the ground all around me. It fell over me like an awful wet quilt. Something like Ugh. glue oozed around <laughs> me, seeping under my shell, gumming up my legs. We were stuck to the frog-like tongue of the taxon as the evil creature slurped his tongue back down his throat. So that's a new anatomy <laughs> thing that's very, very gross. Um, Are you going to read the later and part? Then I'm going to read the later oh, part. No. I'm so sorry, Ted. So the Elemist pauses time, brings them out to be humans again, and then instantly transports them back into the roach morph. And Jake says, morph out. Smart. So they morph <laughs> back into humans. And one Andalite. And one Andalite. <laughs> a gush of stinging liquid like a tidal wave washed me from the sticky tongue. I tumbled blind and terrified through hot, viscous goo. The bodies of the others were shoved against mine as we all grew out of our roach morphs. I felt the gut of the taxon spasming as it tried to deal with this deadly growing meal. The darkness around us split open suddenly. Axe slices the taxon open from the inside. We exploded from the inside of the taxon, wrapped in its guts, covered with blue-green slime. Okay, I just want you to imagine for a second (laughs) what it would be like. You're like a human controller, you know, that that sucks, right? But for the yerk, it's fine, right? <laughs> right. You are now coming into this cafeteria that they've built in the yerk pool, right? Presumably, they know how to cook cafeteria food. It tastes good. You're excited. You have a sense of taste Yeah, now. yerk's probably experiencing taste for the first time. It's amazing. Maybe it's not as mind-blowing as it is for Andalites. Like, we don't really, <laughs> we don't really get, we don't see Chapman struggling with this. But anyway, 
you're sitting there and maybe you've made some friends with like the other yurks and you're just like sitting there with your cafeteria tray. There's some hork bajir. Here comes a taxin. Wait, oh, it looks like the taxin is maybe has some indigestion and it's it's like gross body. It's already really gross. It starts like <laughs> swelling and like bulging. You've never seen anything like this before. And then it, it explodes. It just explodes in the middle of the cafeteria and out come pouring these like goo covered blobs that start running around. And then when you realize what's happening, somebody shouts, Andalites, Andalites. And you're like, oh, my God, the Andalite bandits are here. And they could be inside me right now. Like, did I? what did I just eat? Right? They're never, they're never going to want to eat anything ever again. It's like, actually, it's a matter of, like, psychological warfare. This is a huge win for the Animorphs. It's probably to their credit that they didn't think of this intentionally. It's but incredibly disturbing. I'm glad disturbing. you did. And I also, I will say it's not to their credit that they didn't manage to figure out that five of the Animorphs are human when they demorphed, covered in goo in the middle of the air pool. Yeah, they don't. No surveillance. No surveillance technology at all. It's the 90s. So gross. <laughs> it wasn't as gross as the morphs in the last book, but that scene in particular was just so icky. So they face this choice that the Elemist gives them. What would you do if God or a godlike figure showed up and said, hey, you and your friends and family and some cool animals will come to our <laughs> space zoo? Would you would you say yes or would you I say mean, no? Was it a space zoo? Is not the terminology he used, but it, I okay, guess whatever. You're on planet, whatever. Yeah, Make it sound as good yeah. as possible, but it's the same terms. Okay, so if I were given that choice, the circumstances would be so different, right? It's not like my friends and I are the only people standing between Earth and destruction. So I feel like it would be less of a moral call and more like a call for us specifically. Like, do I want to make this decision for my friends? Seems a little sketch. Friends and family what is this world going to be like? Like, I feel like you'd have to ask, but like, it might be this really cool adventure. I don't know. I would want to, I would want to look into it, but I think it would be a very different choice. Hmm. What about you, Gray? I would not. I don't trust God figures. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Follow-up question. What if God said, you can either have an out now, or by the way, you are the only one that can save the world. And I'm not going to tell you how. Oh no. Okay, if, if they told me I was the only one who could save the world and they weren't going to tell me how, but I'm the only one who can do it, like, I would have to stay and do that. You'd have to stay and do yeah. it. Yeah. Right. I mean, it would suck. I don't know. I don't even know where I would start. Yeah, that's more where the Animorphs are. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. No, I would stay if I were in their shoes. I think I would have a lot more questions than the Animorphs do, but they've been through a lot more than I have at this point. So, Gray, I realize at this point you've already read Megamorphs 1. Yes, I have. But... You could tell us about the title anyway and tell us about what you think it should be or what one of the Megamorphs should be at some point. So the next thing we're going to read is the first Megamorphs book, which is called The Andalite's Gift. I would like to point out that I do not like this cover any more than I liked any of the other covers. This is each of the Animorphs, half their human face and half a morphed animal face. What's Cassie on the cover? Cassie is a fly. <laughs> I don't like that at all. You know, it's good that while they're morphing in the books, it doesn't happen like it passes over oh, their body. Oh, that know? would be super bizarre. Right. It's like, it's like sort of more natural. This is gross. Slightly. I agree. Yeah, I don't like it. And it's Megamorphs, which I know from our previous discussions is uh, each chapter is narrated by a different one of the Animorphs. And because you read it. And also because I read it already <laughs> because of when we're taping this. Um, but I was hoping that the Megamorphs book would be all of the Animorphs figuring out a way to morph together into one really big morph or possibly a morph with lots of different pieces mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of like when the power rangers do their megamorph and each of their little robots connects oh. to make a really big well robot. then yeah the animorph should definitely have one of those is what i'm saying 
Okay, what about like a Russian doll style <gasps> morphing situation where they acquire Yerk DNA, morph a Yerk, infest each other, and then morph into a different human and kind of like stack up a bunch Whoa. of different animorphs into one mind? Could you do that more than one level deep? I guess we haven't. Can you infest someone with multiple Yerks? Oh, I guess you could. Anyway, we will explore this yeah. next time. All right, great. Megamorphs. Good, Megamorphs. Megamorphs. That's definitely what happened. <laughs> If you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the books on our website. (laughs) My notes are great. Rachel, this is a terrible idea.